This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. I want you to join me in your Bibles, please, in the book of Malachi, chapter 1. Malachi 1. Your worship is not good enough. In the book of Malachi, as the history of Israel recorded for us in the Old Testament draws to an end, the prophet Malachi tells God's people, among other things, basically exactly that. Your worship is not good enough. The history that's led up to that point is pretty amazing. So just to try to uh, squish it together really simply here, Uh, God judged the nations of Israel and Judah for their sin, for for departing from him. And he allowed both of them to be conquered by foreign nations and taken into captivity. But as is recorded in the book of Ezra and elsewhere in scripture, God allowed the nation of Judah to return to the land. And so by the time we get to Malachi, the, the temple has been rebuilt, the walls of Jerusalem have been rebuilt. It's really a miracle what God has done in restoring the nation of Judah. But history is beginning to repeat itself in some troubling ways among God's people. Many of the sinful ways that led to God's judgment in the first place are reappearing in the lives of those who have returned. You know, have you ever watched someone do something and it got them in trouble, but you still went ahead and did it too? So imagine a couple kids high up in a tree, and one of them jumps down, hits the ground, sprains his ankle, he's down on the ground, uh, lying there, writhing in pain, looking up at the other kid in the tree. And the other kid looks down, and what does he do? That looks fun, I think I'll try it too. That's basically exactly what God's people are doing when we get to the book of Malachi. They look at their, their ancestors behind them and the sins that led their ancestors uh, to experience God's judgment, uh, to see the nation destroyed, and they're looking back at that and saying, hey, that looks fun. I think I'll try that too. All that stuff my ancestors did to, to warrant God's judgment, l- let's try that too. And that is what's happening among God's people as we get to the book of Malachi. And Malachi is saying, Guys, what are you doing? You're making all the same mistakes. You're entering into all the same sins that your fathers did. And that's why God judged them in the first place. And here you are experiencing God's mercy and returning to the land. And you're doing the same things they did. Malachi tells them in Malachi 3, 7, Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. So Malachi, the prophet of God, is here to show the people the error of their ways and reveal to them that there is a better way. Things do not need to be this way. They don't need to make all the same mistakes that their ancestors did. In the first chapter of the book, Malachi, at God's behest, has some choice words to share about worship. And that's where we're going to focus today on that first chapter. But we'll find that his message to the people is, your worship is not good enough. 
And I want to tell you this morning that there's a real possibility that your worship isn't good enough either. Now, if I personally approached you after the service and I told you, you know, your worship wasn't good enough this morning, what would you think? Well, first of all, you'd think, who do you think you are to be able to tell me that? But if you took it seriously, you'd start to think through, "Ah, what did I do wrong? Was it one of the songs? Did I mess up the words? Um, did I, did I, was I singing the wrong verse? Maybe during the prayer, man, I opened my eyes for a minute during the prayer, and so I messed up my worship that way. Maybe you'd think about how you gave or didn't give this morning. Maybe you'd think about how you, you listened or are listening to the sermon. And you'd go through the checklist and say, where did I mess up? What did I get wrong that made my worship not good enough? But singing beautifully and praying skillfully and listening studiously or preaching eloquently are not what make worship that God accepts. So what is God's beef with the Jews in Malachi 1 and what does that teach us about how we ought to view worship and how we ought to view our relationship with God in general? Let's take a look together at Malachi 1. And it's really interesting to me how God starts this book. So the first words from God through Malachi to the people come to us in verse 2. And there God says, I have loved you, saith the Lord. What a way to start the book. But these beginning verses, like many sections in the book of Malachi, are like a conversation between God and the people. So God says one thing, and the people fire back with something else. And that's what happens here. God says, I have loved you. And what do the people say? They say, wherein hast thou loved us? The people have a problem. And their problem is that they've forgotten God's love. And we're going to talk about worship this morning, but... As God is leading towards talking about the worship that people are offering, he starts with something that goes deeper, that goes more to the heart than the outward trappings of worship. He talks about his love because there's a heart problem between the people of God and God himself. The people seem very ready to question God's love for them. Now, every married couple develops certain rituals all right for example many couples will tell each other i love you at certain times so one or the other leaves for work and you say i love you you hang up on the phone and before you do you say i love you before you say good night you say i love you and that's not a bad thing it's good to say i love you but those things can become a routine they can become just a thing that you do And there are likely lots of wives and husbands out there who deep in their hearts are yelling out, okay, enough with telling me I love you. Prove it to me. Show me your love. Because we understand that love is more than just saying something. Love is personal. What makes it meaningful is acts that really single that person out in a special way. So it could be a special gift, a thoughtful message, a sacrificial act. But you can say I love you till you're blue in the face, but you have to prove it. You have to show it. And so in a way we can, we can say, well, I understand the Jewish people here. Um, they're saying to God, okay, 
you say you love us, but show us the proof. Now, of course, their attitude towards God obviously is, is off base here, but we say, well, they've, they've got a point. God says he loves them, then how can they know that? How has he shown that to them? After all, they've just been through a really difficult time as a nation, and they're still not actually free. Uh, they might be back in their homeland, but they're still under the reign of another nation, and they can look back at how things used to be and how things were so much better under people like King David and Solomon and even some of the good kings of Judah like Hezekiah. And now they say, here we are and we're just kind of eking by. God, you say you love us. Where's the proof? Well, God answers them. Take a look at the latter part of verse two. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Wherefore Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. What is God saying here? Well, God takes them all the way back to the beginning of the nation. Before anyone but God knew that there would even be anything called the nation of Israel, there were these two brothers, Esau and Jacob. And you might want to look back and and say, well, there was one brother who was good and there was one brother who was bad, and God chose the good brother and he rejected the bad brother, right? Right? That's the cookie cutter way for us to look at the story. That's the easy way to think about it. But what's the reality? Was there one good brother and one bad brother? No, there were two bad brothers. They each had their own unique sins. They were different from each other, but they were both pretty horrible people when it came to their nature. And so there's this guy, Jacob, and he's a scoundrel. And yet God singles him out. He makes him a great nation, even though he was a pretty terrible guy. And it's a blessing to see how God really works on Jacob and transforms him in many ways as he continues to work with him. But why did he choose to love and work with Jacob? Well, it's not because Jacob was special. It's not because he was better than Esau. It's just because God decided, I'm going to love this guy despite himself. And God made the nation of Israel. God says, you want proof that I love you? Go back and look at Jacob and Esau. What did, he, what did Jacob do to earn my love? Nothing. But I loved him anyway. Now let's turn the spotlight on you. The people had forgotten about God's love. But what about us? Do you have a personal relationship with God this morning? Have you been saved from sin by the sacrifice paid by Jesus Christ? I hope that is, you could say, a resounding yes to that this morning. But if that is true of you, why do you get to be saved? Why are you saved and your cousin isn't? Why are you saved and your neighbor isn't? Why are you saved and your co-worker isn't? Is it because they are bad and you are good? 
Is it because you earned salvation and they can't? No, it's because of God's love. It's God's love alone that makes you what you are. Now, I don't mean to suggest that God loves you and he doesn't love them. But what I'm trying to get across is the fact that none of us are anything without the love of God. And so the people of Israel said, where is the proof that you love us? And God says, go back to the beginning and ask yourselves, why is there any such thing as the nation of Israel? And the the only answer you can give is God's love. And we in our lives can say, where's the proof that God loves me? Well, why is there any, any such thing as a Christian that bears your name? It's not because of who you are. It's only because of the love of God. The people had forgotten about God's love and it's so easy for us to do the same. We can begin to ask the same question that they ask. Wherein hast thou loved us? Well, scripture gives us the answer to that question in 1 John 4, 9. It says, in this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. You want proof that God loves you? The people of Israel looked back at Jacob and Esau. You can look back at the cross. And that is a better proof than anything else ever could be that God loves you. But it's easy for us to forget about that, isn't it? Now, what does that have to do with worship? Well, Do you ever just stop and ask the question, why? So, when you walk into this room, do you stop and look around and ask why things are the way they are? Why is the ceiling like that? Why are the lights placed the way that they are? Why is the platform this way? Why is the pulpit where it is? Why is there the, the shape like that in the choir loft? I can assure you that there are answers to all those questions, but it's easy for us to just walk in here and be like, yeah, that's the auditorium at Good News Baptist Church. That's just how it is. And and we take part in what's going on. But if you ask the people who designed those things, who planned those things, why did you do it that way? They'd have answers for you. Now, it's okay for you to walk into the auditorium here and not know the reason for every aspect of the design. But how easy is it for us to walk in here and start to worship God and not begin to ask the question, why? Why am I singing? Why am I praying? Why am I here to listen to somebody preach from the Bible? Why do I go to Sunday school? What's the reason for this? And often we can go through the motions and we never stop to answer the question, why? The simple answer is, we're gathered together this morning because of the love of God. We meet on the first day of the week because that's when our Savior rose from the dead after accomplishing our salvation. Even the day that we're here right now is a reminder of the reason we're here. We're here because of God's love for us. 
That's the only reason we have to worship because we can't offer him any worship if not for his love to us. So when we start to forget about the love of God, our worship becomes an empty exercise. It becomes a mere show, a mere performance with no meaning to it. And that's naturally going to lead to the next thing that we see in Malachi 1. So take a look back there with me at verse 6. There God says, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name? Not only have the people forgotten God's love, but they've also despised God's name. Now, we think of despising something and we immediately think about loathing it, about hating it, thinking that it's awful. Well, that's not what God is saying here. When he says they've despised his name, he means that they've counted it as something of little worth. They've thought of it as something that doesn't matter. Think about sales flyers in the mail. What do you do when you get sales flyers in the mail? You pull them out of the mailbox and what do you do? Well, if you're like me, you chuck them right in the trash. What is your attitude towards them? I don't care. I'm not going to take the time to read this. I'm not going to take the time to open that envelope and look at what's inside. I don't care. This means nothing to me. In that sense, I despise sales flyers. I despise junk mail. All right? That's their attitude towards God. Not that they hate God, that they think God is horrible. They just don't care. They're saying God's name, that doesn't matter. Now, that's quite an accusation from God. And so the people come back and they say basically what they said at the beginning. They say, wherein have we despised thy name? That, that's quite an accusation, God. What are you talking about? How have we said that we don't care about your name? If I went up to you this morning and said, you don't care about God's name, you don't care about the reputation or the honor of God, you would say, how could you say that to me? And you would ask what they asked at the beginning. I want proof. Well, God gives them proof. He says here in verses seven and eight, ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And you say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? God says, the way that you're showing that you despise my name is the way that you're worshiping. You're coming to the things that I've set up for you to worship me, and you don't care. It says that they, uh, they call the table of the Lord contemptible. That's the same idea as despising it. It just, it, it doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. And what are they doing with the sacrifices? Well, they're offering the blind, they're offering the lame, and they're offering the sick. And God tells them that these careless sacrifices show their disregard for him. 
Now, they're going directly against the command of God. If you go back to Deuteronomy 17.1, God tells the people there, thou shalt not sacrifice unto the Lord thy God any bullock or sheep wherein is blemish or any evil favoredness, for that is an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Now, if we went to the, the nation of Israel and we saw the way they were sacrificing, where would we start? We'd say, you need to fix the way you're doing worship. You're not doing the sacrifices right. You need to start doing the sacrifices right. But is that what God says? No, he says there's a heart problem. This isn't just about the fact that they're missing one of the commands in the law. God makes it clear that the real issue is not with the mechanics of worship. The real issue is with the motive behind their worship. The way we worship does matter. Our mode of worship, the, the things that we do on the outside, grow out of our motive for worship. And so our mode of worship, the way we sing, the way we preach, the way we pray, those things matter. But the biggest reason that our mode of worship matters is the fact that it grows out of our motive for worship. Our methods of worship are the natural fruits of what is in our heart towards God. So it matters what we do when we come in here on a Sunday. But what God is concerned about even more than what it looks like on the outside is what that shows about what's at, at the heart. And so God says, before I care about you guys fixing what you're doing wrong with the sacrifices, what do I really care about? The fact that you've forgotten my love and despised my name. That's where the real problem is. If those things were fixed for the people of Israel, then the outward worship would be fixed too. So God looks at them and he doesn't just say stop doing worship this way and do it another way instead. He says, fix your heart. You're not right with me. You're not looking at me properly. And for that reason, we find God rejects their worship. In verse 10, God says, I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts, neither will I accept an offering at your hand. In verse 13, he says, in talking about their sacrifices, should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? So there's the sense that here they are, they're holding out their sacrifices to God. And they're saying, we've got our rebuilt temple and here we are, we're offering sacrifices to you, God. We're burning incense. We're doing the stuff with the showbread. We've got everything going on for worship to you. Here it is. And God says, I reject it. You're holding it out to me. I'm not gonna take it. I want nothing to do with that. The worship you're offering to me is not good enough. It reminds me of Cain in Genesis 4. There, Cain offered what he thought was appropriate and essentially God said, your worship is not good enough. Well, Cain turned it into a personality thing and he became bitter against God and against his brother Abel. But in both Genesis 4 and Malachi 1, this isn't about personal worthiness. 
This isn't about I figured out the trick to do it just right. The issue at heart is not right methods to worship God in a way that's truly worthy of him because we can never achieve that. We can never get to a level where in our strength we can worship in a way that God says, all right, you have gotten to the good enough mark. Your singing was good enough. Your praying was good enough. We can't achieve that. So what makes the difference between worship that is good enough and worship that is not good enough? Well, exactly what God's talking about here in Malachi 1, the heart. It's a hard human tendency to fight. We, we tend to think so much about the outward trappings of worship and how it will appear to other people. While God cares a whole lot more about where our heart is in relation to him. In his lectures to my students, Charles Spurgeon gives a challenge that has stuck with me and something I struggle to put into practice. But he's talking there about public prayer. And I'll be the first to admit that public prayer is hard to do in the right way. But he's talking about public prayer and he challenges those who lead in worship in that way not to make a show of their prayers with fancy language. Not to use the prayer as what he calls an oblique sermon. Using my prayers to preach to you. But instead to truly pray to God. He says, remember the people in your prayers, but do not mold your supplications to win their esteem. Look up. Look up with both eyes. I think we would do well to have those words ringing in our minds every time we worship. Whether we're singing, praying, listening, giving. I need to be looking up with both eyes. It's so easy for our minds first to go to, what's the person next to me going to think? Or what are the people going to think about how well I perform whatever I'm doing? Instead of saying, this is about God, this is for God. What is my heart toward God? Our minds and our hearts can be far too focused on what we think is best or what others will think of us and far too little on the one we're claiming to worship. So could God say the same to us this morning that he said to his people in Malachi 1? Is your worship good enough? Don't begin to think that you've done God a favor or earned some sort of commendation because you showed up to church this morning. Don't get me wrong, I'm glad you're here. But many people have the idea that if they show up to church once a week, they're giving their dues to God and they're obligating him to look kindly on them and not give them too hard a time in life. If I do my once a week church thing, then I'll appease God. But if that's your attitude, then you haven't accomplished anything by coming to church today, either for this life or for eternity. 
Because God would look at that and he would say, I'm not going to accept it. Your worship is not good enough. Contrary to what others may tell you, you cannot worship God well enough to make him like you or love you or accept you. Worship is not about earning favor with God through an exceptional performance. God cares a whole lot more about the state of your heart than about the beauty of your singing voice, the eloquence of your prayers, or the size of your offering check. So what would God have to say about your worship this morning? What would God have to say about my worship this morning? Maybe you don't know God. And true worship is based on a relationship. You can come to know God and know God's love through Jesus Christ, the God-man who died for you. You're a sinner who deserves nothing from God, but Jesus died for you, not because you deserve it, but because he loves you. Don't play church in an attempt to earn yourself a place on God's good side. Trust in Jesus Christ to save you and take your place. And then you can know God and his love. Then you can walk with God and then you can begin to truly worship God. If you do know God, but your worship is hollow this morning, then return. You've allowed yourself to lose sight of the love of God. Perhaps even to think little of the name of God. So go back to the cross. Answer the question of how you know that God loves you. Rejoice in that truth. Meditate on that truth. Begin again to see God for who he is and you'll be able to watch your worship once again be full and meaningful and not only a joy for you, but something that truly brings pleasure to God himself. The only worthy worship is worship that is focused on and empowered by God himself. So what would God say about your worship? Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757 488 3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.